Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. This episode is all about air quality. I'm absolutely delighted to be in the company of Ender Hayes, Professor in Air Quality and Carbon Management at the University of the West of England. Ender started his academic career with a degree in agricultural science and followed this up with an MSc in agricultural and environmental technology and a PhD in biosystems engineering. His career has spanned a range of air quality and carbon management projects, working with the public, businesses and governing agencies at a local, national and international level. His work focuses on atmospheric emissions, including odour by aerosols, pollutants such as nitrogen dioxide and greenhouse gases. I am eager to know more about the importance of air quality and Ender's work. So let's get into it and welcome Ender to the podcast. Hello, thanks for inviting me along. You are very welcome. I, I can't wait to hear about what you've got to say. So let's get started with finding a bit about yourself, Enzo. Um, How did you come to be in air quality? Oh, it's a rather long and complicated story. So I'll give you the short version instead. So I grew up in rural Ireland, a place uh, just outside a town called, uh, called Cashel, very much a kind of an agricultural community. And my father at a very young age got me very interested in wildlife, in conservation, and, and in the environment in general. And from there, when I went off and did uh, my degree that was involved in agricultural science. And during that degree, I started to get more and more interested in the environmental aspects of agriculture. That led on to my master's and subsequently, subsequently onto my PhD, which was looking at emissions from intensive agriculture and the impact that they can have on different uh, habitats and different ecosystems. Did that, moved over to the UK, uh, joined the University of the West of England. And one of the main reasons I, I like the research unit that I work, work in there is the variety that it brings in that while I came from an agricultural background, a lot of the skills and a lot of the technical knowledge that I had was also applicable to the urban environment, to other pollutants and to other sources. So air pollution in itself, while a singular topic is related to so many different things, whether it's transport, agriculture, industry, and it also brings a, a major human element in terms of people's behavior and people's kind of social practices. Absolutely. And I got all those threads when I was uh, sort of having a look at what you were doing. There were so many sort of avenues to go down. In terms of a starting point then on air quality, what are we talking about? What is it? What is because air quality sort of gives you an indication that there might be poor and there might be good. What does it mean? OK, so when we think about uh, air quality in its very traditional sense, we primarily think about our urban environment and we primarily think about two gases that we're worried about. The first is nitrogen dioxide, and that comes from road transport. Uh, so that's what's coming out of the exhaust of your vehicles. The second gas that, are, that we worry about is our gas. The second pollutant that we worry about is particulate matter. So these are really, really small particles that come from transport. They can either come from the tailpipe or they can come from brake and tire wear. But they also come from agriculture, they come from industry, they come from a range of different sources, including background levels that can kind of carry over and into a city. So 
in our cities, particularly here in the UK, they are the two pollutants that we are most worried about. And we've also got the added complication, if you like, that in our cities is where we have the most people. So we've got the biggest pollution problems and we've also got the most risk of exposure and health effects. But they're just two pollutants. If we wanted to think about air quality in its much broader sense, there are some natural sources of air pollution. For example, we here in the UK, we've experienced Saharan dust storms. So this is sand and dust that's been picked up from the Sahara and carried up across Europe and across the UK. A few years ago, we've we experienced Icelandic volcanic ash that carried over the UK and indeed had a huge effect in terms of shutting down aviation and a lot of issues during that time. I think that was in 2011. You also get things like biomass burning in Eastern Europe and how that carries across. So there's a lot of natural sources, but there's also a lot of anthropogenic sources that influence things like ground level ozone, sulfur dioxide. And when we think about agriculture, then we start to think about ammonia and nitrogen from intensive agriculture. So there's always a certain amount of these gases and a certain amount of these pollutants in the atmosphere. But what we've got is the human contribution in terms of elevating these, con uh, these concentrations. And then of course, having a substantial effect not only on our public health, but also on our ecosystems. Yeah, and I'm guessing from what you're saying there is that it's about how much of each of these uh, is can be problematic rather than necessarily what it is. Is So how do we decide when one particular particle or a gas is now becoming problematic? So uh, there's a huge amount of research that's gone on around this for decades now. The WHO, has the World Health Organization, has air quality guidelines for different pollutants. So they set out standards or uh, shall we say numbers in which uh, they determine at what level there is a substantial health risk. OK, so they've recently did these in uh, 2021, so just last year, and they would outline that, OK, at this particular level, there is a substantial health risk. So that WHO guidelines are then taken forward by things like, or by organizations like uh, the European Commission and are then transposed by different member states into law. Now, the WHO guidelines are stricter than many of the standards set by national governments and indeed set by Europe. And part of the reason for that is the WHO just look at the health implications of those pollutants. Whereas when we start to transpose them into law, we have to think about more broadly in terms of the kind of economic consequences of different levels and what's ultimately uh, what's an acceptable risk threshold that that country would adopt and would take into place. So we've got these health based guidelines that are in place described and put in place by well established organizations and indeed well respected organizations. And then we have to think about how we can best both diagnose these problems against those standards and also think about the mitigations we can put in place to try and ensure we stay below them. OK, that, that's really interesting. Um, talking about that variability, depending on where you live in terms of being in the UK, then are we quite what's the word hard in terms of we've gone quite close to the WHO or we gone? Oh, no, we'll never meet those. Uh, let's make them a lot lower. So the here in the UK, we've had uh, established air quality objectives for a number of years. Now, it's slightly complicated, so bear with me for a moment. So we have European limit values, 
Okay, these are set out by um, European uh, directives, so the Ambient Air Quality Directive. And then each member state takes that directive and they transpose it into national law. Okay, as a minimum, you have to put in place the European limit value, but you can make it slightly tighter or more stringent if you wish. So if we were to look at nitrogen dioxide, and in particular, if we were to look at the annual mean objectives, this is when you average everything up over a year, the limit value is 40 micrograms at a European level. And here in the UK, the, annual, the air quality objective is also 40 micrograms. So we've kind of matched it like for like. Again, because science and because our, the research and the understanding of the health effects is growing and developing rapidly over the last few years, the WHO in, 2000, uh, in 2021 dropped their objective uh, for nitrogen dioxide, I think it was down to 20 or maybe 10 micrograms. So it's half of what we've got here in the UK. Now, obviously, it takes time for legislation to catch up, and we're not entirely sure whether the UK would copy the WHO guidelines, but you can just get a sense of that kind of disparity between a health-based objective versus a health-based objective which includes consideration of our economic ability to adapt, if that makes sense. Okay, yes, that does make sense. So in practice then, how close are we to hitting any of those levels in particular places within the UK? So we'll stick with nitrogen dioxide because that's yeah. our most problematic pollutant. Um, and it's probably easier to follow the one example the whole way through. So for years here in the UK, for about two decades or just over two decades, we've had a process running called the Local Air Quality Management Process, LAQM. And as part of that process, it fell out of the Environment Act in 95. And as part of that process, every local authority in the UK has a responsibility to review and assess air pollution in their administrative area. Now, that involves uh, putting monitoring in place to measure air pollution levels. It may involve uh, quite technical exercises, detailed assessments using dispersion models and more detail or more um, uh, more monitoring systems in place to understand if we're exceeding uh, this 40 micrograms level. And if we are, then we have to uh, develop an action plan and implement that action plan. Now, when the process was first designed, I don't think they realized the scale of the problem that they were going to identify. I think the original idea was that we would probably find these issues in a dozen of our big cities, you know, our, our, our Londons, our Manchesters, our Birminghams, et cetera, et cetera. To date, 20 years later, almost 70% of local authorities have identified one or more exceedances of this 40 microgram level. So it's a widespread problem. And it isn't just a problem that's based within our big cities and our big urban areas. We're also finding them in, in small towns, and even in, in quite small remote areas where you might have you know, queuing traffic outside one or two houses. So what we've been good at is, and exceptionally good at, is diagnosing the problem. So we're really good at finding the problem. What we're not good at is solving the problem. And there's lots of different reasons for that. Some reasons could be around the political will to try and actually implement the changes that are needed and the disconnection, if you like, between local authority responsibility, national government responsibility, and, and that kind of whose responsibility is it anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah. So political will is one. Lack of funding was another. A lack of ownership of the problem. So we diagnose it within environmental health departments. 
but they've got no control over the sources. They're not the transport department or the planning department or the public health department. So they had very little control in that sense. So great at finding them, not great at solving them. Um, and this is why we've got uh, widespread exceedances of with stick with nitrogen dioxide and the annual mean across the country and why it will take uh, quite a few years to resolve it. Okay, so the situation looks not great at the moment. What are the <laughs> what are the health impacts uh, and the and and also because uh, you did mention biodiversity earlier? Do we know what the biodiversity impacts of those levels are as well as they currently stand? We we do have an indication, but again, when we get into health data, it starts to get a little bit complicated. So. If we were to look at a global level, the impact of air pollution is estimated to cause about 7 million premature deaths per year. Okay, that's both indoor and outdoor air pollution. It's about 4 million for outdoor ambient air pollution. That's globally. If we come down to a European level, we're talking about 400,000 deaths per annum, premature deaths. And I'm going to keep using this word premature because we have to come back to what that means. If we come down here in the UK, you're talking at about 40,000 deaths per annum. Now that's looking at nitrogen dioxide and particulate matter because it's complex. How do you say, well, it's just one gas or just another uh, pollutant? You have to think about the multiple impacts of these, these different pollutants. So that's the kind of numbers we're looking at. Now, the more and more you, you disaggregate that data down at a more localized level, the more uncertain it starts to become. You've also got the added complexity of the terminology that you use because they're not, to some extent, they're not real deaths. They're statistical deaths. Okay, they're they're likelihood deaths for a, for want of a better phrase. So that creates its own challenge in terms of how do you make air pollution real to people. I think at the moment there is only one death uh, which has air pollution as a cause of death on a death certificate. Um, and that was a, a young girl down in London a few uh, years ago who suffered quite badly with asthma. And it was in the uh, inquest, it was quite clear that air pollution was a, a major um, impact in terms of her, her passing away. So th there's challenges there in terms of how you describe and how you understand uh, the health implications. It gets even more complex, sorry about this, but it does get even more complex when you look at the fact that there is a relationship between air quality and deprivation. So generally speaking, and this is very generally speaking, the richer you are, the more likely you are to create pollution, but the least likely you are to be exposed to it. And conversely, the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be exposed to it, but the least likely you are to generate pollution. So while we talk about 40,000 deaths in the UK, we have to now ask ourselves, well, who is now passing away? And quite often these deaths can also have other uh, wider determinants of health which kind of influence them. So there was a piece of research done in Wales a few years ago um, by uh, Dr. Hugh Brunt, where he looked at this relationship between air quality, wider determinants of health and deprivation, and basically described it as a, a perfect storm of three aspects coming together, a, a, almost like a, a triple jeopardy of challenges coming together that are all quite complex and all interact, but actually have a substantial impact on our, on our wider public health. Yeah, and that's got parallels, hasn't it, with climate change when you think about climate change issues in that 
the rich are producing the more carbon dioxide uh, more emissions and it's usually impacting the less rich so that, that is a similar sort of it feels like a similar sort of parallel absolutely it, it, it is uh, it's a, it's a very similar kind of environmental justice challenge that we face um but it goes beyond just the generation of pollution and we say the exposure pollution but also the ability of those in deprived communities to adapt and i'm sure we'll come and talk about solutions shortly but when you think about some interventions that are put in place the wealthier in society can arguably adapt a lot easier and change habits change behaviors change cars for example whereas uh, the poor in society can often find it much more difficult to to adapt and move with the uh, interventions that are put in place yeah and on that point is it because because it's quite, it seems to be quite a heavy transport theme is it the affordability of transport for those that have rather than those that have not can't afford transport and therefore are not emitting nitrous oxide in that way is is that the is that where the disparity is coming from so it it, it comes it comes from a, a different number it really is a complex science <laughs> yes. but it, it does our policy area but no it does come that that's certainly part of it but it, it is influenced by a number of different factors so it's probably best again we'll stick with nitrogen dioxide we'll stick with transport and we'll kind of explore uh, a case study if you like so let's say for example and i do i I own a car and let's say, for example, that the local authority here uh, decides to implement an intervention in which I can no longer take my car into the city. OK, because it doesn't meet a certain standard in terms of cleanliness, for want of a better word. And this is we're, we're seeing these interventions being implemented across the UK in what they call clean air zones. Now, I'm in a privileged position in that I've got a, a good job at a university and in theory, I could adapt to that. So I could move my car on, I could buy an electric car or I could buy a more modern car. And now I can continue to move in and out of the city. Whereas if I was driving for argument's sake, a 15 year old diesel car and I'm a single parent doing two jobs, I'm much more worried about paying the rent and I'm much more worried about energy bills and keeping food on the table and this ability uh, both financially and also shall I say emotionally to adapt to what is going on around me becomes more and more challenging to do so so when we think about the design of interventions we we have to almost forget that air pollution no we have to stop thinking about air pollution in terms of it being about air pollution you have to start remembering it's about people it's about the health effects of people and it's about people's ability to adapt to the interventions and the ability or the willingness to uptake new habits, new behaviours going forward. It's about people and less about the numbers. And actually, when you talk about people and you talk about it in a story in the way that you do, it's it's much easier for everyone to, to get it to and to find it meaningful. So if we stay with people, and you're obviously talking there about a clean air zone. Is that an intervention that is a good intervention then? Because it sounds like on the one hand, it's great in that it pushes car traffic out, for example, but then it's giving those social issues. So where do you see clean air zones as a solution currently? Oh, they're Marmite for me, to be very honest. Um, I, I kind of love them and hate them with equal measure, um, if, if, if that's fair. 
Look, it's a challenge. Uh, the, the way we've been dealing with air quality is that we tend to focus on the typically policy tends to make us focus on the where and the what. OK, now the where is the geographical hotspot where we've got high levels of air pollution. OK, and the what is the technology that generates that pollution. So cars, industry, whatever it might be. And because of that, we often apportion pollution by by technology. So cars, buses and HGVs, how much nitrogen dioxide comes from each of those different euro standards, different fuel types. You know, we often break pollution down in that way. Now, the problem with that when you're trying to have a conversation is that it's it's a very technical conversation. People aren't in that data. They're not part of the where and they're not part of the what. So you have to take it forward. You have to think about the who and the why. OK, so the who can be, is there a variation in gender? Is there a variation in age? Is there a variation in income level, as we've already discussed, are different uh, demographics more or less responsible for the generation of pollution. And then the why is the motivation. Why do I get behind the wheel of the car? Is it driving to work? Is it taking kids to school? Is it leisure time? Is it shopping? Now what you have done is you've moved the conversation on from being very technical to also being very people orientated because now we're all experts in how we live our lives. We're all experts in the reasons why we engage in a certain type of travel behavior. So now we can start to see ourselves in the data. We start to get a much better understanding of the role we play in generating pollution, but also then the role we can play in trying to change our behaviors, change our practices and reduce air pollution. Now, when it comes to something like a clean air zone, you have to try and balance the who and the what with the where and the why and bring all of these different actors in place. Now, if you try and implement, shall we say, an incredibly strict clean air zone overnight, people and indeed businesses are going to struggle and they are going to struggle to adapt. Whereas if you can phase it in gradually with different phases over X amount of years, it may take longer for the air quality to improve, but you're giving people more time to adapt to what's happening around them. Adapt in terms of the where and the what, but also adapt in terms of the who and the why. So it's 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 never a linear answer. It's never a it's never a A or B, and there is no silver bullet for trying to uh, address air pollution. There will be consequences. There will be trade-offs, and it's a difficult role for decision makers to try and ensure that you're maximizing the public health benefits and not leaving anyone behind, if that makes sense, that you want to try and ensure everyone can adapt with it. So if you look at something like a clean air zone where you restrict the movement of vehicles coming in and out of an area, you have to think about, so there's the stick. Well, what's the carrot? So the carrot is uh, better public transport. The carrot is uh, better and safer active travel routes, you know, improving affordability, accessibility, reliability, cost, would be a huge one. You know, could we make public transport cheaper for people coming in and out of a city? So there's multiple spates or uh, plates that you have to spin here to try and make sure that you, you maximize the uptake of an intervention. And from what you've said there, it's logically is what I'm hearing is that if you put those steps in first, so you make more sort of accessible ways into a town or a city through 
expanding your cycleways and cheapening your your public transport if you do that first and then bring in the restrictions does that mean it'll work better or do you need to bring the people on board in a different way before you start the systemic change Sorry to sit on the fence here, <laughs> but there, again, there, there's no straightforward answer to that because I'm based in Cliff. So Cardiff is very different from Bristol and it's very different from London and it's very different from Birmingham and it's very different from Swansea. So even though cities might feel the same, even though um, uh, I would say the populations of those cities might feel the same, the, the local circumstance is all important whether that's the who and the what or the where and the why, that, that local context is hugely important. So you have to think about where a city is starting from. So you could have one city that already has huge investment and a lot done around public transport, for example, and you know the networks are there. Well, in that case, you could think about bringing in, would say a, a restriction intervention like a clean air zone quite quickly. Whereas if you're starting from a lower baseline, you have to do a lot more upfront investment to get your active travel and to get your public transport in place. And I think it's also important to recognize that not everyone can change overnight. You know, cycling is not an option for everyone. The bus is not an option for everyone. There will always be people who need to use their vehicles, we'll say, for uh, for work purposes. I, I'm thinking about tradespeople, for example, you know, electricians, plumbers, things like that. There will always be people who perhaps need to use a vehicle because of um, ability or um, uh, mobility issues. Um, so you have to think again. It, it's about not leaving everyone, anyone behind, and and allowing people to adapt to it as quickly as possible. But we also need to be quite clear in that we're dealing with a public health crisis here. So it's not something, and it goes back to political will. It's not something we can you can leave alone to the next election cycle and the next election cycle. It has, we have to make the hard choices now and tackle these issues as, well, we should have started tackling them years ago, but tackling these issues as, as immediately as we can to reduce the health burden and to maximize the health benefits from some of the interventions we see. Yeah, uh, I mean, that sounds like a very familiar story. We should have done that years ago. <laughs> um, when you look around, maybe in the UK or maybe in Europe and beyond, is there somewhere that are getting it right, that they've looked at their, their town or city and they've seen the what, where and the who and the why, and they've put all that information together and they've got a really nice thing going. <laughs> so a, a success story. Well, there are some really nice examples across Europe. Um, some of them have been in place for years. Some of them are, are kind of only newly developing. So, for example, Ljubljana in Slovenia, lovely town, absolutely beautiful town. And about 10, 15 years ago, uh, the mayor decided that he wanted to pedestrianize a huge proportion of the city centre. And quite literally, he went down a route of knocking on businesses' doors and saying, look, this is what I want to do. This is what would happen. They closed down and they did it in phases. So they started small and they gradually built out and out. Within that, you're obviously allowed to kind of walk and cycle around the city. Some parts of, shall we say, the pedestrianized areas also have bus routes that go through them. So there's still public transport to those areas. And they also have thought of very simple things like they've got these small electric vehicles, kind of like a little golf cart, if you like, that if you've got mobility issues that you can 
flag one of these down and they'll pick you up and they'll move you around the city and things like that. But one of the things that they did very much was about getting businesses on board and real, helping them understand the value that this would have. So, so there's a, a great example of that kind of proactive leadership stepping up and deciding uh, what they wanted to do. If we look at somewhere like Paris, for example, uh, Paris has made huge strides over the last few years in terms of giving more space to active travel and encouraging more cycling uh, within the city. And then, of course, you have a lot of what I would describe as a very uh, traditional cycling cities where cycling has always been a huge part of their culture, like Amsterdam, like Copenhagen, etc. But they still have air quality challenges. Let's not pretend that, that they don't. But that putting in place what we, we can only describe as, as enabling mechanisms to allow change. It's not saying you must do this. It's putting the enabling infrastructure and the enabling mechanisms in place so that greener choices become the social norm for everybody. It's just the easy way. Instead of saying, well, the easy thing is to just get behind the wheel of the car. Actually, the easy thing is to jump on the bus or the easy thing is to jump on your bike or go for a walk or whatever it might be. You put the, what's, what's the phrase? If you build it, they will come. That That's phrase in the movie years ago. It's kind of that sort of mentality. <laughs> if you put the infrastructure in place, then you can encourage greater uptake of it. And sometimes that uptake is really, really quick. And sometimes that uptake is a little bit slow. I saw a great picture a few years ago of a, a traffic jam. And I'm using air quotes here, but a traffic jam in Copenhagen. And I think there was two cars at the traffic lights and about 50 bicycles all just lined up together and it, it's kind of a, a yeah a, a different um a different visual aid of what we normally see in a city a nice a nice one for sure where mm. where is the change going to happen is it going to come from the bottom up or the top down or is it going to be a mix of the two it's going to be a mix of the two, much like you would uh, you would say with the kind of uh, the climate argument that we, we we just had and how you deal with um, greenhouse gas emissions as much as how you would deal with air pollution in that we, we can't blame just one organization or just one entity. So there's a lot that uh, again, we'll stick with transport as that's the example we stuck through, but it's applicable across a lot of sectors. There's a lot that the transport sector itself can do in terms of cleaner fuels, cleaner vehicles. Of course, there is. There's a lot that national government and indeed local authorities can do in terms of putting these enabling mechanisms in place, in terms of more um, stringent legislation, quicker timelines to achievement, in terms of clear uh, delineation of responsibilities. So there's there's a lot that they can do. There's a lot that businesses and employers can do to encourage um, more up, uptake of alternative travel. And there's also a lot that we can do in, as individuals. We need to take ownership of the fact that we generate the pollution. Uh, therefore, we also need to take ownership of our own decisions and how we adapt and move forward with them. And on that, on that point about people taking their responsibility, do you find with air quality, air pollution, that actually it's it's more, maybe it's because the narrative isn't so widely spread. It's, you can't see poor air quality unless it's, I guess, really terrible, <laughs> unless you're standing next to a, a car with a diesel exhaust coming at you. How do you tap into people's thinking about, oh, there is an air quality issue in the city or town I live in? For those of us that work in the air quality community, there's the uh, the phrase that's been rattling around for years. How do we make the invisible visible? 
we've, we've all used it in a lecture at some stage or another and it's a real challenge so take a, a major again if we start globally and work our way down if you take a, a massive city a beijing or a delhi for example you can see the air pollution you know it's there it's it, you can taste it you can smell it, it it's there it's it's um quite obvious and everyone connects to it because it's part of their day-to-day -day lives whereas here in the uk we we don't really have those kind of major smog events if you like we used to have them back in the 1950s we had the great london smog of 1952 but those sort of they used to call them pea supers those pea super events we don't really get them anymore so we do have air pollution within our cities but they're just it's just not as tangible as as people are not tangible for people to try and and understand so it comes back to kind of how do you shift the conversation away from being very technical to helping people understand a their behavior and how that behavior generates pollution so there's a lot you can do there in terms of translating air pollution data to something that's more meaningful so instead of saying 20 micrograms of air pollution came from diesel vehicles could we say 20 micrograms of air pollution came from uh, shopping or traveling for shopping and we've tried to do this in a in a recent project an eu project called uh, clare city in which we wanted to put people and their behavior at the heart of the debate and help them understand how their behavior generated pollution so that's one way linking pollution to behavior Another way is to stop talking about air pollution because it's quite a technical subject. You know, 40 micrograms is bad, but 39.9 micrograms is good. That doesn't work for people. That doesn't resonate with people. Whereas the things that do resonate with people are usually health and are usually money. They're the two things that you can open a conversation with people on. So you can look at things like how you translate the air pollution data into and, and focus on the health evidence as opposed, you know, start with health and work your way back to air pollution. Everybody knows somebody with asthma. You know, there's the perfect example of a friend or a family member who maybe has an, an underlying health condition. And can you kind of connect to that lived experience and bring it back from there? In terms of income, you know, can we look at the, the impact it has on the health system? Can we look at kind of variations in, in the cost of doing one mode of transport as opposed to another, the health benefits that come with it? So a lot of it, it, it comes back to people and their behavior. And then you can do lots of things like how you visualize it. I mean, there's some great pieces of research that have looked at kind of online visualization techniques. I was uh, on a webinar during the week where they had a whole pile of balloons attached to the back of a car to try and help people visualize how much pollution was coming out of uh, the tailpipe of a car. You can do things, and we've done this in the past, where we've created a big six meter by four meter floor map of the city. And we show where all the air pollution hotspots are, and we show where the air quality management area is. And we do little things like allow kids to kind of sit on it and find their school and coloring where their school is and map out their how they travel to school and the different routes they take and while they're doing that we're having a conversation with the parents in terms of well here's your house and you drive your kids to school there and then you drive to work over there and then you drive to the shops over here and then at the weekend you take your kids to club x and club y and they slowly start to see a geography of behavior and subsequently a geography of pollution so 
lots of ways of doing it but i think the main way is to stop talking about air pollution talk about other things and then work your way back yeah i mean i almost wish i'd known that at the start of this conversation <laughs> but i feel like there might be a, there's a, definitely a requirement for a part two on air, air pollution <laughs> we'll call it something different so it because i mean it's been hugely interesting following that narrative through the conversation and arriving where we've arrived at, at people's lived experience, which I think is very valuable in bringing some context. But as we are running out of time, uh, a couple of last questions. One is, what is your future ambitions within your own work? Oh, that's, that's a good one. So I've been working, so there's probably three areas that dominate my working life. Uh, my research life, if you like. One is around traditional pollutants, so nitrogen dioxide in urban areas, things like that. My ambition there is uh, that we don't have problems in our urban areas anymore, or that we at least see a substantial improvement in air quality over the next five to 10 years. And we see these kind of interventions like clean air zones being not seen as being a burden that are put on people, but actually an opportunity and a huge success to transform our, our urban areas and make them more accessible, more enjoyable. So in the next 10 years, I'd like to stop worrying about that. One of the other areas that, that I do a lot of work in, and we haven't really touched on this, but is around uh, going back to my original kind of uh, foundations in air quality management and science is around uh, ammonia and intensive agriculture and the impact on ecosystems. This is a big challenge that we're going to have to try and face in terms of how do we deal with nitrogen and indeed other pollutants from agriculture and how do we ensure that we minimize the amount of um, um, biodiversity loss or damage that we're seeing because of those. That's a bigger challenge and will take quite some time to look at, particularly when you look at the kind of strategies that we need in terms of feeding a growing population so that's more of a midterm one i suppose and then if i was to look at the future it's looking at the emergent emerging challenges that we've got so these are things like bioaerosols so by um biological particles that come off different sources like composting and agriculture and things like that and, and understanding those better microplastics i think is going to be a hugely interesting one these very tiny pieces of plastic, these very tiny pieces of, of microfibers. They are being talked an awful lot in terms, about an awful lot in terms of our waterways, but not a huge amount in terms of air and um, how they how the, where they're coming from and how they are being transmitted. And then thinking about the health effects that they have because bioaerosols and, and microplastics are very different from nitrogen dioxide in terms of what sort of effect they might have in our health. And then more work in the indoor space. We spend 90% of our time in the indoor environment. So it's we need to think much more about what we're surrounding ourselves with in terms of the materials we use, the, the candles we burn, the uh, you know things like solid fuel burning has has come back as being one of those major issues. You might we we call it kind of aesthetic pollution rather than rather than heating because we needed to heat our house. It's uh, well, the central heating is going fine, but we like the fire because it looks pretty in the corner. So there's there's lots of, of emerging challenges over the next uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years that will take uh, quite a bit of time to get to grips with. So short, medium and long term. 
Well, dare I say it, I'm not entirely sure it'll be resolved in my lifetime. So there's also a huge part, which is working with the next generation of researchers and the next generation of academics and the, the next generation of undergraduates and postgraduates and trying to educate them and put them in positions of influence. Wow, you, you're not going to be out of work, Ender. <laughs> That's a lot to go at. Busy life. <laughs> the breadth is excellent, and uh, we could talk in detail about all of those. So it's super interesting. One final question. Those are quite heavy, heavy topics. You come, I get a sense that actually you're quite a positive person. What are your thoughts and feelings about the future in terms of air quality and health and those uh, ongoing issues? I. I'm a positive person, depending on the day of the week. <laughs> I, I think anyone who works in the environmental sector uh, goes through kind of waves of emotions in terms of, of how we deal with it. There are some times when we feel we're at the top of the wave and we can see progress and we can be quite positive about it. And then there are other times when, you know, it feels like a tsunami coming at us that we have to try and deal with. So like anyone, I think in the sector, I, I go through uh, yeah, different moments of being positive and negative. I think the solutions exist. That's probably where I am most positive. The solutions are there. It's not like we have to come up with something new. We don't need to innovate. Oh, sorry. We don't need to invent. We need to innovate. OK, so I think that's where my positive my my positive attitude comes from in that the science is there. The science is understood. We're really good at finding the problems and the solutions exist. But we need to innovate in terms of how we implement those and how we bring people with us and on board. And I think it's not just an air pollution. If you want to look at the kind of synergies between managing traditional air pollution and also greenhouse gases, you know, they come from the same sources. The solutions are primarily the same. So rather than having them as two separate policy areas, having them as an integrated policy area where we ensure we maximize the co-benefits and indeed try and minimize the trade-offs that might happen. So my positivism comes because the solutions are there. My pessimism comes from the, the slowness it takes to try and implement these. Yeah, I totally understand. But hold on to that positive because it, it's it's excellent. Uh, it's been really, really useful to get a, an overview of this particular topic. So thank you so much for spending some valuable time with me. No problem. Very happy to do so. The problem with poor air quality is that you can't often see it. And perhaps because of this, I had not fully appreciated the significance of its impact on human health or its complexity. I'm not sure why I'm so surprised when every other environmental issue I've explored to date has many different angles. Ender was fabulous at breaking it down into digestible and relatable examples, and I thought his reasons for emphasising people over the technical made complete sense. The scale of the issue is somewhat daunting, but yet again, the answers are available. They just need to be implemented in a way that's appropriate depending on the location. For more on Ender's work, see the links in the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you for listening. Don't forget you can follow the podcast to get automatic access to each new episode. And it would be lovely if you could rate, review, and share it too. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>